We are looking this evening at Exodus 20, verse 12, the first of the second table of the moral law of God. And so uh, here, um, the Lord through Moses now says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Let me pray for us before we come to look at this together. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would send your word out this evening, that you would make us attentive. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to accompany the proclamation of your word. We pray that you would give us light, that you would lead us and guide us to your temple and to your altar. We pray that you would instruct us and teach us. We pray that you would renew our minds. We pray that you would revive our spirits. Our God, we pray that you would be at work in us and that you would change us as your word is read and proclaimed. And so would you come and would you do the work that you alone can do, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was a very young Christian, I read through Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. And I don't know if you've ever done that. Edwards wrote them when he was a very young man. And there is some speculation that toward the end of his life, he understood redemptive history better because he realized how much he probably failed to keep those resolutions. But of all those resolutions, the one that jumped out to me the most as a young Christian was Resolution 46. And in that statement, the young Jonathan Edwards wrote these words, resolved never to allow the least measure of any fretting uneasiness at my father and mother. Resolved to suffer no effects of it, so much as in the least alteration of speech or motion of my eye, and to be especially careful of it with respect to any of our family. I just remember that jumping out at me because as a boy, I didn't respect my father and mother, and I imagine that it's probably true for you as you look back and think about your relationship to your father and your mother. And yet, this is the first commandment when God comes to address the horizontal dimension of uh, one human being to another. When God's transcendent ethic now moves from the vertical commands, those responsibilities that we have before God in our relationship to him, not to have other gods before him, not to uh, make any images and worship him falsely, not to take his name in vain, and not to defile his Sabbath— When he comes now to talk about those ethical dimensions on the horizontal plane, the very first command that he tells his people is to honor their father and their mother that their days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, I want us to briefly consider this evening three things. First, I want us to consider the duty required in this command, and then I want us to consider the object of this command, and then I want us to consider the promise that is annexed to this command, the duty, the object, and the promise. Well, notice the first word here in verse 12 is honor. It is in Hebrew the word kavod. It is the same word that is translated glory. It is that word that is reflected when the scripture says that we are to glorify God, that we are to give God the glory that is due to his name. And the word carries with it, as you probably know, the sense of weightiness, heaviness, and, and what it's saying is there, there is a recognition of the weight that is due unto some other being. 
And in, in regard to God, that weight is of the creature to give the honor and glory due to the infinite creator. There is an absolute weightiness to the glory of God. And yet here, as God is now moving to person-to-person interactions, it's very interesting that the first commandment and the fifth commandment sort of mirror each other. Just as God is to receive glory and there is to be no other God before him, so in our human planes, God has given us a subordinate authority structure, and children have a responsibility to honor those that God has put over them. In fact, we'll see tonight that it's not just children. It's in every relationship, in every authority structure, not because of something inherent in another person, not because of their giftedness, not because of their abilities, not because of their likability, not because of something intrinsic in them, but merely because the God that we are to have no other gods before has put in this world and in this created order authority structures, and he expects because of the position that he has set different individuals in that they are recognized and they receive the glory or the honor that is due to them. Um, You know, Anna reminded me Probably three or four years ago, Table Talk did a, um, a topical study on honor and honorability. And one of the emphases was that we live in a dishonorable world. We live in a world that has lost a sense of honor. It's lost a sense of dignity. It's lost a sense of honoring those to whom honor is due. We live in a very individual world. We live in a world in which... People say the only one that matters is you, and you do what you want, and you identify how you want, and it doesn't matter what someone else says. We live in a world, if we open our internets and get on social media, in which professing Christians every single day are speaking wickedly about ungodly rulers and not giving honor where it is due and how it is due, even to those with whom they disagree. And that's a problem because we are catered not to give honor to whom honor is due. Now, the command doesn't say that parents, and we'll see here in a little while, that other authority figures are to demand honor. Um, We don't get to take this command and, and go around and bash people with it and say, you need to honor me. Um, when I was an intern many, many years ago, um, at, a, at a certain church, an elder, it was not 10th Presbyterian, let that be noted, but an elder in that church who was um, sort of an authoritarian figure got upset with me about something, and um, my wife was in the kitchen, and he was on the phone, and he was yelling at me, and it was over something very, very, very minor, and he said, you work for me, you work for me, you'll honor me. And I thought, wow, what a very little person would demand of someone else that. And yet God requires that we give requisite honor to those to whom it is due. And so the command, and it's very fitting, isn't it, that it would be the first command in our human-to-human interactions. And that the first thing God would require of us is that we would give honor to whom honor is due. You know, it's very interesting, too, and 
we're going to see this here as we consider the object secondly and, and in a focused way. It's very interesting the connection between the fifth commandment and the fourth commandment. There's almost a hinge on which it turns because moving from those first four commandments in which our relationship to the living God is set out and what he requires of us and what we owe him, what is our duty to him. In that fourth commandment, remember, he, he requires that we remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, but that then in our personal interactions, the heads of households are to make sure that their children are remembering the Lord's day, that whoever's working for them is remembering the Lord's day. You see built in, even into the fourth commandment, that structure that God has appointed for societies. Um, Eric Alexander, the Scottish theologian, says this. He says, in the transcendent ethic of the Ten Commandments regarding our responsibility to our neighbors, the very first thing which God tells us he holds in peculiar honor and we are to hold in peculiar honor is parenthood. He says, I think it's of great importance that these relationships that God is about to teach us regarding begin with the home and the family. The reason is, of course, that the home and especially the parent-child relationship is the foundation on which all other relationships are built. It's also the foundation from which all other relationships grow. Now, um, if we were to um, look at the garden, the first relationship is the husband and the wife, and then from them is parents and children. And then out of that burden societies with its ecclesiastical and civil spheres. And so this commandment, and we're going to see this in more detail here shortly, this commandment extends beyond the family, but the family is the foundation of society. It's the foundation of all our other relationships. And so it's no wonder, is it, that today in our day, especially in our day, the family is under attack to such an extent as it is. Um, Back in 1988, a uh, sociologist named Annie Gottlieb in her book, Do You Believe in Magic? The Second Coming of the 60s, suggested that the generation of young adults in the 60s were the generation that destroyed the American family. She goes on to write, we might not have been able to tear down the state, but the family was closer. We could get our hands on it. We believe that the family was the foundation of the state as well as the collective state of mind. We truly believe that the family had to be torn apart to free love, which could alone heal the damage done when the atom was split to release energy. And the first step was to tear ourselves free from our parents. Isn't that interesting? That was written in 1988, reflecting on 1968 and 1969. J.I. Packer then in 1994 wrote this. How urgent it is in these days that parents and children should relearn the ways of Christian family life. Listen to this. In the West, yesterday's extended family has shrunk to today's nuclear family. Social security and community affluence has reduced the family's importance as an economic unit. All this has weakened family relationships. Parents are too busy to give time to their children. Young people are more prone than ever to write off their parents as clueless old fuddy-duddies. That was in 1994. Now today, in 2022, it is no longer the weakening of the extended family and, and the the um, the perverting of the nuclear family, it is now the attempt to abolish the nuclear family. 
and to say, you find your family in whatever identity you identify with, whatever people groups, whatever proclivities, whether they be sexual or otherwise, that's where you find your identity. That becomes your family. That becomes the highest, utmost community, and the nuclear family needs to be uh, disintegrated and done away with. And yet in God's law, it is the nuclear family. It is the father and the mother and the children ordinarily. It is the fabric of society. Um, Satan knows that if he can undermine the relationship of parents to children, he can undermine the work of the church and society as a whole. Um, well, the object very clearly here is father and mother. Um, uh, someone might say, well, uh, why, why does the Lord say honor your father and mother? Isn't the father the head of the house? Yes, very clearly in scripture, ordinarily the father is the head of the house. And yet it might be that someone would think, well, then I don't owe my mother the same honor that I owe my father. And so very interesting in this command, the father and the mother are together, set together because they are equally deserving of the honor that their children ought to give them because God has placed them as their most fundamental under God authorities over them. You know, it's very interesting in, um, in Exodus 21, in the next chapter, this command is fleshed out even more. Verses 15 through 17 says, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Now, um, if you were to go through the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, it is remarkable how much the scriptures have to say about honoring and or the consequences of dishonoring parents. I remember as a child, my dad would make me go up to my room when I was disobedient and read the Proverbs. Never an enjoyable thing. It makes a boy hate the Proverbs. But, but I remember going up and reading the Proverbs after disobeying my dad and reading that proverb, whoever curses his father and mother, the eagle shall pluck out his eye. And I was like, ooh, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> That's the sort of force that this command comes with. That it is so vital in this world that children, and we have all been children, learn to give appropriate honor to our parents because it is the very fabric of society. Now, again, this is linked to that first commandment. And one old writer says, in the care and interest, tenderness and authority of the parent, we behold a faint image of the superintendence, compassion, and government of God. Let me read that again. In the care and interest, tenderness and authority of the parent, we behold a faint image of the superintendence, compassion, and government of God. Now, there is a weighty responsibility, isn't there, on parents? And when the Apostle Paul picks up this commandment and he brings it into the context of the new covenant, in Ephesians 6, 1, he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. He goes on to say, fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they be discouraged. Do not bear heavy down on them. Do not discourage them. So there is a responsibility in this command for parents to represent to the best that God enables them. Again, I'm going to read this to the best, though a faint image, the best of the superintendents, the compassion 
and the government of God. Now, when we think about this command, it would be easy for us to go through many different categories uh, of the ways in which a parent may exercise authority over their children. Um, Parents want their children to work hard. They want them to do their schoolwork. They want them to do chores around the house. And certainly all of those things would be included in what this command um, is teaching and what God is requiring of children. And yet there is an even more fundamental principle that is driving this commandment, and that is the principle. That is the principle that God has so ordered this world that the truth of his word and the propagation of the truth of his word and the continuance of the church is primarily through the instruction of parents in the spiritual realm over their children. God has so ordered this world that he preeminently works in the Christian home. This is why households find such a prominent place in both the Old and the New Testament. The household is the primary place where the covenant Lord is working in instructing the next generation of children. And so there is a weighty responsibility for parents to reflect that in their shepherding of their children, in the diligence, in teaching them the scripture, in teaching them the sweet promises of God and the gospel, in teaching them the warnings and what will happen if they don't listen. We're going to have a promise at the end of this command, but there are many warnings that are associated with everything that God says in scripture. And God has ordered it that the parents would be the primary providers, not outside of the church, but in step with the church, in instructing their children, in, as the apostle says, in bringing them up in the training and the discipline of the Lord. You know, sometimes you'll hear well-meaning Christians say, well, I don't want to make my children go to church if they don't want to. I have heard that. Well, none of those people say, well, I don't want my children to have to go to school if they don't want to go to school. I've never heard a parent say that. I've never heard a parent say, I don't want to tell my children you can't eat too much junk food if you really want to eat junk food. I've never heard that. But sometimes well-meaning Christian parents say, well, I don't want to raise my children to be hypocritical. And so I don't want them, I don't want to force them to go to Sunday school or to church. No, it is our moral responsibility to say with Joshua as parents, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That doesn't mean that we can change our children's hearts. It doesn't guarantee the outcome, but it is what God has built into the Christian family. And by the way, this is, and we'll come more to marriage in the seventh commandment, but this is the very reason why God does not allow believers to marry unbelievers. This is also the reason why our Westminster Confession says Protestants should not marry Roman Catholics. I know that sounds harsh. I know in our society that sounds awful for someone to say, but there is a theological and biblical reason for that. God wants his truth passed down from one generation of believers to the next and for parents to be the primary instructors of their children in the home. Now, we are going to fail and praise God there is a church and we also know that it's all of grace And we know that we can use the means to the best of our ability, and that doesn't guarantee the salvation of our children. And that's why we cry out for it. But what it does mean is that Christian parents are to be so burdened for the salvation of their children that they care vastly more for that than they do for the worldly success of their children. 
I have pastored parents who have cared more that their children are successful and famous. I have pastored people with very famous children, and they, they praise their children for that fame while their children have rejected the gospel, and they seem not to care at all about that. But it is the responsibility of children to honor their parents as they instruct them. Now, children, listen. I want to speak to all the children right now. So every head unbowed and every eye open. (laughs) I know this is your favorite command. I know that. And I want to warn the parents, starting with me, not to bandy it about in anger when your children is disobeying. Just like you shouldn't tell your spouse you need to do this because God says that in anger. But children, this is one of the most important commandments in the Bible because your well-being in life is dependent on it. Um, Someone has said that by the time children turn about 20, they've gone from despising their parents to being like, you know what, my parents were... They were okay. And, and this individual said to one, one person who said that to him, he said, you know, your parents must have really matured. <laughs> because what happens is you hit a point, and this happened for me, and maybe it happened for you, where you realize, if you, especially if you had Christian parents or at least faithful parents who were faithful in providing and protecting you, that you start to realize what a blessing that is from God. What a blessing that is from God. Now, I have noted, and there's so much more that we could say, but I've noted that this command has a breadth and a depth to it that is much greater than just uh, father and mother to children. As the nuclear family is the foundation of all societies, so all other authority structures float out of that. All law enforcement, all civil government, All ecclesiastical rule has come out of the family so that it would be a mistake for you. And there are well-meaning Christians who do this, who say, no one will tell me what I should do with my family. There can be a sort of a hyper family anarchy where people want to go back and they want to say, no elders, no pastors, no government officials will ever tell me what to do. And and that is not a godly spirit because God has ordered society that all other forms of authority in society have flown out of that first form, that foundational form of the family. Um, The Westminster Shorter Catechism states this very clearly, the fifth commandment. It says, requires the preserving the honor and performing the duties belonging to everyone in their several places and relations as superiors inferiors or equals. So that means if you are a business owner, you have a responsibility in the fifth commandment not to deal harshly with those under you. That means whoever we work for, even if they're awful, the apostle Paul tells us that we are to work as unto the Lord, not as men pleasers, that even if they're harsh, we are to do our work as unto the Lord, that we are to honor even dare I say it, ungodly authority figures. It doesn't mean that we are to obey them when they tell us to sin. We are not. We are to honor them. Now, there is a great picture of this, isn't there, in the history of King David in relationship to Saul and Jonathan. Remember, Saul is this tyrannical uh, king, and he is spending the bulk of his 
his uh, time as the king in that office trying to destroy God's next anointed king. And you'll remember the account where Saul wanted to kill David and Jonathan, his beloved son, who was wed to David in that that, um, very special bond of friendship. Remember, Jonathan warns David and he, he, he intercedes for David and he shoots the arrows for David and he disobeys his father. You see, he understood that his father's authority didn't supersede God's word. And yet, remember, with regard to David, that when David had the opportunity to take Saul's life when he was in the cave, he didn't do it because he had respect to the office that God had placed him in. And even more than that, when Saul, at the end of his life, after he is killed, and David now has every opportunity to say that wicked man is now dead, he he basically praises Saul in a song of praise because he is the Lord's anointed. Now, there are great lessons for us to learn in this, just as the Shorter Catechism tells us what this command requires in all of these spheres. It also tells us what it forbids. Listen to this. The fifth commandment forbids the neglecting of or doing anything against the honor and duty which belongs to everyone in their several places and relations. That means that when we see the flaws of our parents, God requires us to still try to see what virtues may be in them and to speak well of them. I remember as a young Christian, I was somewhere and I heard one girl ask another girl out in public about her parent and her mom and the girl that was asked started cursing about her mom and said she's dead now and started using harsh curse words. And I was like, wow, this command extends even beyond your parents being here. You understand that, that we are to give honor to those that God has placed in authority over us, speaking well of them, praying for them, just as parents are to pray for children. Children are to pray for their parents. Um, Just as We have a right to voice political opinions. God has commanded us to pray for our leaders. Um, I remember in 2008, I was an interim pastor, and uh, Barack Obama had been elected, and it was the Wednesday after the election. And in the particular church I was pastoring in Philadelphia, there were uh, a large number of Republicans and a very small group of Democrats, and they all came to the prayer meeting. And I had prepared a a way that we could pray, given the state of our country and leadership. And and it was divided into two categories that I had gotten from Ligon Duncan. One of them was, here's how to pray for our president-elect if you're overjoyed that he was just voted in. And then Ligon had, here's how to pray for your president-elect if you're dismayed that he was just voted in. And I thought, this is going to be a great guiding guiding structure so that we can all honor those that God has put over us. And I went to the elders and said, would you be okay if I led our prayer meeting? And they said, we would not be comfortable with that. And so if I can use this idiom uh, very reverently, all hell broke loose at that prayer meeting. And one person stood up and prayed, oh God, I pray that you destroy our president-elect and you fill his face with this honor. And people left the church. Because that man 
failed to give honor to whom honor is due. And it would be good for us to learn that principle. It doesn't mean we can't disagree. It doesn't mean we can't have strong opinions. It certainly doesn't mean that we obey either parents or pastors or elders or civil authorities and civil servants where they call us to disobey. We do not obey them. In fact, Jesus will elaborate, won't he, on this commandment, and he will say in the Gospels, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. So that if a parent tells their child, you can't go to church because we hate the gospel, that child should wisely and lovingly try to find a way to persuade their parent. Otherwise, they need to go and honor God and not disobey the living God when their parents call them to disobey. Now, that takes a lot of wisdom. This is not always a black and white execution of the application. But the Lord requires us to only obey those in authority over us when they give us commands that are in accord with his scripture or that do not call us to disobey them. But in whatever relation we have to those in authority over us, in whatever that relation may be and whatever they call us to do, we are to look for those ways that God would have us honor them. This is why Jesus says, give taxes to whom taxes is due. Do I like paying taxes? No. It is one of my least favorite things to do. Taking 30% out of a paycheck is not fun. Amen? Amen. And giving it to a government that's going to do stuff with it that I don't approve of is not enjoyable. And yet Jesus, the king of kings and the king and the head of the church said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And so we are to pay our taxes and we are to do it as unto the Lord. And we are to pray for those in authority over us. And we are to obey them in any way in which they are not calling us to sin. And anything less than that is anarchy and it undermines society. Um, I don't want to get into government theory, but I do want to say the government we have, though I have grave issues on many levels with it. And we need to exercise our rights to vote, to be involved, to have opinions it is still an enormous blessing from Almighty God because the alternative would not be enjoyable. And many societies have been under those alternatives. Um, And many people have had ungodly fathers and mothers, but that doesn't mean that they get to dishonor them. That doesn't mean that they get to kick off the shackles. You know, even when our parents are in their later years, God calls us to honor them. Jesus actually brought an accusation against the Pharisees for saying, whatever money we would have given to to you, to their aging parents that needed their help, it's a gift to God. You don't get it. And Jesus said they lay aside the command. They're out of their home. They're not under their authority. Nevertheless, the command to honor your parents continues. It continues to the end of their days, it continues beyond that in the way that we speak about them. Now, there is a promise annexed to this commandment, and you'll notice the Apostle Paul will actually say it's the first commandment with a promise. Well, there was a promise that God was going to judge the ungodly in earlier commands, but this is the first positive promise. And you'll notice there in verse 12 that the promise is, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long 
in the land that the Lord is giving you. Israel was going into the land, and God was essentially saying, if you will listen to your parents as they instruct you in my word, as they teach you about how to be a fruitful and beneficial citizen in society to others, as they give you all the guidance that a father and mother should give you, to whatever degree that you get that, if you will honor them, then you will succeed in the land that I'm giving you. Now, this is not a blanket statement. God is not saying, children, if you will honor your parents, you're going to live to 90. You may not want to live to 90, okay? Almost everyone I know past 90 says they want to go to be with the Lord. They're tired. <laughs> this is not a blanket statement. Many godly people have honored their parents. Jonathan Edwards, Resolution 46, never to even roll his eyes. In the least, how hard that would have been. Probably just like taped <laughs> open. Never in the least to even bat an eye at his parents in disrespect. Died at 53 from a smallpox injection vaccine. Does that mean that he dishonored his parents and he didn't have a long life? No. God's providence is such that sometimes he extends the life of the wicked and shortens the life of the righteous. Sometimes he gives the righteous a very long life and cuts the life of the wicked short. And yet there is a general principle here that God has so ordered our relationships that if we would be in the habit of seeking to honor those that he puts in authority over us, things will go well with us and for us generally. Now, we have said as we've looked at all these commandments, we have never kept this commandment as we ought to. None of us has. Every one of us has dishonored our superiors in many ways, at many times, and in many, many, many forms. We have dishonored those that God has put over us. And that means that we don't deserve the blessing that is annexed to this, that promise of the long life. And when we come over to Ephesians 6.1, where Paul transports this into the context of the new covenant, he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. So there is now outside of Israel that extension of the promise among the nations. And yet, who has obeyed this as they ought to? None of us has. It's only one. And it's interesting, the scriptures draw our attention constantly to the way in which the Lord Jesus always honored his father and mother. You know, when he was a boy, Luke tells us that he submitted himself to them, that he grew in wisdom and stature, that he submitted himself to the instruction of his parents. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Jesus needed to be taught the scriptures. In the incarnation, he didn't know the scriptures automatically by osmosis the divine nature didn't impart to the humanity of jesus something that doesn't belong to human nature he grew in wisdom and stature luke says that mary would have diligently taught him the scriptures joseph would have taught him the scriptures i know this by the way there's we don't know we don't know anything about the lord jesus from his infancy and his uh, very early toddler years until he's 12 in the temple. We don't know anything that he did, but we know this, that every year, Luke tells us, his parents took him up to the temple to worship. We know that. He was subject to them. 
He was subject to their discipline and their instruction. I even imagine there were times when Jesus was wrongly disciplined by his parents as a sinless boy. And yet he would have honored his father and mother perfectly according to God's word. And he would have honored his father. Remember in the temple, he understood the principle that there was a higher authority than his parents. And remember when the caravan of his descendants had left and they had moved on and they had started going home and he was left behind in the temple. And he was he was asking the scribes and, and the teachers, he was asking them questions and he was astonishing them with his answers. And his mother comes and she's worried about him. Uh, I had a coworker I was witnessing to 20 years ago and I was telling her how Jesus never sinned. And she said, what about that time that he made his mother worried? I said, yeah, that wasn't sin. That was her anxiety. He said, don't you know I must be about my father's business? There was a higher authority, his heavenly father, of whom his parents were but a faint image as under authorities of him. And he understood that his obligation to God the Father was greater even than his obligation to be with his parents going back to Nazareth. And his whole life was one of acknowledging authority, so much so when Jesus heals the lepers and he tells them, go to the priest and show yourself to them as a testimony to Moses. Here is the eternal son of God incarnate. And what is he doing? He's acknowledging what God says in his word, that in order to fulfill the law, there were certain authority structures that had to be fulfilled. And those lepers that he now cleansed had to go show themselves to the priest. He even respected the Pharisees, dare I say this, when he says they sit in Moses' seat, don't do like them, but do what they say. He even acknowledged those positions, even when those filling those positions were perverting them, and even when he brought the strongest denunciations against their wickedness, He never undermined the structures that God appointed. And then, and this is the most marvelous, when he hangs on the cross for our sins of violating this commandment. When I was a boy and I would read about the eagle plucking my eye out, how horrific, because of dishonoring my parents, Jesus takes that sin on himself on the cross. He takes those punishments and those threats on himself. And when he does that to atone for our our violations of this, you know what he does? This is amazing. He not only thinks about us, he not only thinks about those who are crucifying him and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He not only acknowledges his Father in heaven when he prays to him, he thinks about the well-being of his mother on the cross. He says, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. While he is nailed to the tree, Jesus is fulfilling this commandment for us. And he is modeling for us how we ought to be desirous of putting it into practice in our lives. Now that means when we go out of here this week and we have our many different relationships in our marriages, parents to children, children to parents, Bosses to employees, employees to bosses, uh, civilians and citizens, to those that God has appointed over us as authority figures in civil government, believers, to those that God has appointed over you as officers in his church, that we are to seek to be desirous of making it our goal 
to show honor to whom honor is due. Not to blindly do everything that they say. Look, as much as I want to tell you, you can't root for Alabama as the football season starts. Much to my chagrin, I don't have that authority. I can cheer against them, but I can't tell you, you can't send your kids there. But any time those that God has placed in authority over us speak the truth of God's word to us or call us to do things that don't call us to sin, we are to give them the proper respect as unto the Lord and not as unto men. And when we do that, we're actually glorifying God. God is actually glorified when we do that. I want to encourage you tonight as we consider these things that you would be zealous to seek to put this into practice, whether you are an inferior or a superior in whatever relationship you find yourself in. And then I want to challenge us that we would be praying. We would be praying for those under us and those over us. That means parents praying for the salvation of their children diligently. And it means citizens praying for our leaders. It means children. And again, listen, children, it means praying for your parents. We're great sinners. We're going to mess up. We're going to do things wrong. We're going to fail you. We're going to set faulty examples for you. And we need the prayers of children as much as children need the prayers of parents. And our elected officials need our prayers. And your elders and deacons need your prayers just like you need their prayers. I think that would be a very God-honoring way for us to seek to be putting this into practice more and more. And then when we recognize that we fail, that we would go back to the Lord Jesus, we would confess the ways that we have not given proper honor to whom it's due, and we would recognize that he has atoned for our violations of this. He has already covered our transgressions and blotted them out through the shedding of his blood and through his sinless life of honoring his father and his mother. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this evening what the Lord says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we want to acknowledge you first and foremost as our supreme authority. We thank you that we have such a perfect father, that even where our human fathers and mothers have failed, we have you as the father of lights and the infinitely holy and good and gracious God and Father, and we thank you, Lord Jesus, that we have you as the sinless Savior. We thank you that you always obeyed where we have failed, and that you have given us the example of how we ought to put this command into practice in our lives. Would you give us your Holy Spirit? Would you help us, Lord, to be uh, zealous, to be growing in our obedience with regard to what you have called us to do? in our many positions and stations in life. And so, our God, would you help us and have mercy on us? Hear us for your namesake and for your glory and honor. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.